Hey everyone, John here. Just a quick word of warning. Uh, we will be spoiling this film in its entirety, so if you have not seen this film and you don't want it spoiled for you, uh, just hit pause real quick and go and watch the movie and then come back and enjoy the show. I don't know what to say, really. Three minutes till the biggest battle of our professional lives all comes down to today. Either we heal as a team or we're going to crumble. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. Welcome to the very first episode of Surviving Sports Flicks, because there's just too much estrogen going around, question mark. Uh, I'm John. I'm Sammy. And I'm Joseph. And this week, we are kicking things off. Uh, and s- same rules for the chick flicks uh, apply here. You know, we're going to do the same categories. It's literally no different than any other movie. It's just sports specific this time um just basically our excuse to watch sports films pretty pretty much it was well the genesis of this was uh, and we are recording this the day before the super bowl um and uh it was last year's super bowl that was the genesis of this and also congratulations to the winners insert name of winners here i'm not going back to editing that so you all know (laughs) but last year we were watching the super bowl and there were seven of us and three of us i mean three of us were very big football players uh, football fans uh one of us was someone that has an appreciation for the game understands the game not the biggest fan in the world but their world is like that's me this is me we're talking about me (laughs) But someone wins or loses, it doesn't necessarily ruin my evening, week, month. But, you know, I do have an appreciation for the game. And then there were three people that, um, if we had told them that they kicked a three-point, you know, threw for a three-pointer, they probably would have believed us. (laughs) This is correct. Yeah. And so the idea began there. And as we are wrapping up the NFL season with the uh, Super Bowl, how it is just so perfect that we are uh, going into the Pantheon Cup for the film where the NFL met cocaine, apparently. <laughs> Oliver Stone's <laughs> arguably last great film, Any Given Sunday. And it's a Joseph pick. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But it is Joseph two for three or one for three. We will find out. And this may be this may be one of the only times that I can honestly say going into the episode. I I don't know where I'm going to land by the end of the episode. Oh, I knew how I landed three days ago. <laughs> so 
around the second time I watched this film for the show. I knew but, where I was going to land. It's just one of those, I wasn't sure how well it was going to hold up, and we'll find out. Yeah, we are <laughs> definitely going to talk about it. So why, why don't we call a timeout? <laughs> Get ready for a lot of sports puns when I can make them, but we're going to call a timeout, and we're going to review the trailer, and then we are going to try our best to decipher what, ha- what happened in this movie. <laughs> And that's it. Are corrupted by wealth and fame. It's a short life, but it's a goddamn glorious one. It's about the money. Football is a corporation. He may sell a lot of t-shirts, this kid, but he's tearing his team apart. Well, then you hold it together. When tradition... This guy started coaching back in the late 60s. ...is threatened by youth. Your time is over. Unless you start playing this game the way it's played today. There's no concentration. There's no focus. A battle is fought. Money is the only thing I respect. For the soul of a game. Today, I'm ashamed to be your coach. Why the hell do you think my father put me in charge of bullheaded moron? You got old. This is the noise that keeps me... Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz, Dennis Quaid, James Woods, Jamie Foxx, and LL Cool J. No intensity, no victory. Where the hell is your intensity, Tony? Any given Sunday. Any Given Sunday, starring Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz, Dennis Quaid, James Woods, Jamie Foxx, LL Cool J, Anne Margaret, Lauren Hawley, Lawrence Taylor, Jim Brown, Aaron Eckhart, Bill Bellamy, Matthew Modine, John C. McGinley, Elizabeth Berkeley, and for some reason, Charlton Heston, directed by Oliver Stone. And we are, go- and Joseph, I got a question for you. Um, we were supposed to do sports movies, not gladiator movies. Why did you make us watch this? <laughs> well, um, I figured gladiator movies, but th- that was sports back in the day, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's true. I feel like this movie was written by the kid in the airplane who you know, they, they asked, uh, the pilot asked if he liked movies about gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like, I forgot how much of a crazy ride this movie is oh god yeah i I mean i i was joking about you know how this movie is about how how the nfl met met cocaine and and, you know it was not necessarily about the drug content but just about just the way this movie's presented (laughs) 
Well, and it starts off, it goes from zero to 60 really fast. <laughs> yeah. Like really um, fast. Yeah. Like, what's your opening scene? What's the thing that's going to draw you in? We're going to, like, injure the star quarterback. And that's the movie. It, and um, the first bit of the movie is a pretty good chunk of a game, actually. Yeah. I, I've never seen that in a sports movie where they, call, they start off where, yeah, you're pretty much going to watch a good portion of a football game. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we get into really a lot more, I have to ask the usual question because there's a story that goes along with this. Joseph, Sammy, when was the first time you watched this movie? Well, mine's real easy. Uh, about 15 minutes ago. Good, <laughs> good, good. We're prepared. <laughs> hey, I took notes. Good, because I didn't. <laughs> I, I kind of. I, you I, know, I was, if you didn't admit that, no one would know that you hadn't yeah. taken notes. So I feel like they know, uh, <laughs> but but also, and it is kind of an indication, you know, for you know what the movie is. I made it about forty-five minutes in, and I'm like, I can't keep up. This is going to be six hours trying to get through it if I took a note on every little thing. So I just. Let it happen. Anyway, Joseph, when was the first time you watched this movie? I, I remember watching this in theaters, actually. Uh, oh, oh. Yeah, my, my, it was really funny because there's a kind of slightly funny story, not quite hilarious, but my mom, me and her both liked to go into the movies quite a bit, and especially after she got divorced, and that would be one of our bonding times, is she'd be like, hey, let's go watch this. She, and she'd be like, let's get all like Al Pacino. Hmm. And... I don't think she was prepared for the insanity, but she's she liked the movie. Uh, but I remember because it was like a school night, and I was thinking I don't remember how old I was back in '99. We were looking at well, it, it. I would have I would have been 17. So, uh, okay. Well, I was like almost a teenager, or right at. You the, don't want me to say how old I was? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. You can you can. <laughs> You can you can you can uh, not use your words there, <laughs> but uh, I think we went to a ten o'clock showing. We didn't realize how long the movie was. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, I was like, uh, maybe it's midnight. Do you do you want to go home? I was like, yeah. I don't know how much longer this movie has. I said, I just got to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the and the answer is about another hour. <laughs> yeah, and it was just one of those like I remember watching the rest of it at home whenever it came out in DVD. Yeah, but I did watch a good portion of it in the in the theater. Nice. Um, I, before I uh, get into my story, just a quick sidebar. Do you remember um, what the look on the face of the cashier was when you, your mom bought the t- a ticket? You know, when she bought a ticket for a child <laughs> at 10 p.m. on a school night for any given Sunday. I I don't think they gave a shit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) So, my story. And this is uh, not a funny story, but really just kind of a sad story. So, um, I did not see this movie in theater, so Joseph has one up on me. (laughs) Um, Yay! I I didn't see it in in theaters, but I saw it on video. And I saw it hours after getting out of the hospital. (laughs) Um... I was an athletic trainer, a student athletic trainer, um, in you know the sports medicine stuff um, through high school and college. That's what I did for my first two years of college was studied sports medicine, 
And my freshman year, my freshman year of college, um, I was actually assigned to work with the men's basketball team. But when two a days start, and if you don't know what two a days are, it's literally you have it's you know before school starts and you have two practices, you know, in, to get ready. So. Uh, and you, everyone works two a days and up until the start of the season, and then you kind of split off into your own sports. So there was this one ran, one random Saturday that I did not have to work the football game, um, I, and basketball hadn't started. And instead of like going off to school and you know watching the game and just you know as a as a student, I'm like I'm taking this day off. Like I hadn't seen my friend in a while. Like you know. The first opportunity I had to hang out with, you know, a friend of mine, I was taking it. I woke up that morning at like seven something with just this in like really bad pain. And I could not get it to go away, no matter what I did. And finally I I just made my way across the house and I was like, We need to go to like the clinic now because something's wrong. And the pain kept getting worse, and I kept uh, and didn't want to wait for, you know, the direct care clinic. So we went to the emergency room. I had my kidney stone that day, and it was moving around, and uh, it didn't pass that day. But they told me I had a kidney stone, and then they gave me what. Every freshman boy wants, you know, as the semester's starting, a strainer so I could pee into it so when the stone passed, they could study why it happened. So Fantastic. Yeah, that was, that, that was just mm, such a blow to the ego. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, after I got out and was kind of, you know, able to drive because, you know, they gave me a little bit of meds to help with the pain. So I had to go, uh, we went over to my friend's house and watched this on the VHS for some reason. Like, I don't exactly know why we picked this movie, but, um, other than like, like Joseph's mom, Al Pacino. And it was an experience. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine this movie felt uh, even a little bit different or it might have you might have had more clarity. It might have made more sense while you were on pain meds. Actually, maybe, maybe so. Also, this is the same kidney stone that um, two days later I was hurting so bad in class. I went to the head of uh, our program and I was like, "I am in pain. I have a kidney stone. I'm going home." And he said, "You do that." And I went home and turned on Blair Witch and tripped to it on pain meds. Nice. <laughs> so connection to another surviving chick flicks episode. So yeah. So, um, but Oliver Stone is, uh, there was a, there have been several times in my life when I got obsessed with this man. He is, I'm, and I'm going to say that like, I believe that. Um, and there is a period of his career that is mostly untouchable. And I would say that's about from 80, 81, 82. I don't remember off the top of my head when, uh, Conan the Barbarian came out, but somewhere eighty between eighty and eighty two through nineteen ninety nine, and you know he started off. At, he went back and forth from being a director and he uh, just a screenwriter, and he started off his career mostly known as a screenwriter because 
He didn't direct Conan the Barbarian, but he co-wrote the script with John Milius, who is also equally as insane as <laughs> Oliver Stone. <laughs> um, and then when uh, Oliver's first fil- next film as a director didn't work, he wrote this little movie called Scarface that caused just a minor phenomenon. And then tried again directing, and but his next uh, hit was Midnight Express. And then you hit the you hit the sweet spot with his career of uh, Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, and the just runs. And there are peaks and valleys from the you know eighty two to ninety nine run, but I, I think those are his golden years. And then Alexander happened, and the streak died. <laughs> it, it died horribly. Yeah. And I'm not saying everything that Stone has made since this movie has been bad. It's just not lived up to what he was once capable of. Or started off super great, and you thought, oh my god, Oliver Stone is back. And then something happens, and you're like, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. Y'all can guess which one that was. <laughs> so this film, uh, all of a sudden he's been directing for a long time. And this was the first film that he didn't work with his usual director of photography. And the director of photography that did come in to, to uh, work with Oliver, Oliver on day one said, welcome to Vietnam. <laughs> which if you watch anything from about 83 to 99... Vietnam has a tendency to come up. And the reason that films like Platoon are so vivid is that's because Oliver Stone served in Vietnam. He was over there. He was a soldier. And so that's why Vietnam factors into so many of his films, whether it fits or not. You know, because he, he has the Vietnam trilogy of Born on the Fourth of July, of Platoon, and Heaven and Earth. Then you have films like JFK, which are Vietnam adjacent, but not necessarily central to the film. And then you have random moments like The Doors, where for no reason a character just says, Vietnam's over there, man. And I start <laughs> laughing because it's like... And the thing you need to know is I, I make a lot of jokes about Oliver Stone, and I make a lot of jokes about the, t- the ties of Vietnam to his career. But if you watch... Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and JFK. One thing is very apparent: something happened to Oliver Stone over there that forever broke him, and he is irreparably damaged. And I say because Platoon is about the, you know, what it was like over there. Born on the Fourth of July is what happens when you come back, and JFK is about why we were over there, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, so whenever I read... And this was about... uh, I don't know. (laughs) This is what... I think this is just what it's like in Oliver Stone's head. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also, when the cinematographer... When he told the cinematographer that, you know, beginning the film, by the end of that film, that that, uh, DP had lost 18 pounds and had was stressed out from day one until they wrapped pictures. <laughs> so. And looking at this film, I can see why anyone would be stressed out because 
there there is a lot going on in this film. Some of it is related to football, and some of it is absolute insanity because we can do that. Also, there's some a bunch of shit about gladiators. I I'm not gonna miss that. Oh, did you whenever? Did you not pay attention to the uh, jambalaya? Or uh, I'm gonna say it the way uh, Al Pacino said it: the jambalaya. Whenever Beeman is over at uh, his coach's house and he's watching Ben Hur, and scenes from Ben Hur are just laid over the scene for no reason. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And. That is important because this film has two credited screenwriters, which, uh, and in total, this movie had about seven writers, and this is an amalgamation of not one, not two, but three scripts. I I could have actually imagined it being more. (laughs) And you know what's funny is the script wasn't really the problem because the scenes were well written. It was, I, I don't know. Yeah. So I do have a question for you guys. Which cut of this movie did you watch? Because there are two. I want to say I watched a director's cut, given the length. All right. So here's how how you can tell. Did anyone lose an eye? Yes. I don't think so. Okay. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, if someone lost an eye in your version, you should uh, you you should know because it's very very. Very apparent. <laughs> um, but that's the easiest way to tell which version because um, <laughs> that was one of the scenes Oliver Stone added in. Which is weird because Oliver Stone actually cut 12 minutes of this film and then added six new ones. And that was part <laughs> of it. <laughs> of course so, he did. So the director's cut is shorter. But I actually watched both cuts, and I couldn't, other than the eyeball scene, I couldn't tell you what what changed. (laughs) That's pretty bad. Yeah. I bet you Oliver Stone Stone could tell you exactly what changed. (laughs) Yeah. I I wouldn't want to ask him, because I don't want that four-hour dissertation. Uh, which, uh, fun fact, he was actually in film school and the same film school at the same time as Spike Lee. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is that is very interesting. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Because people have a tendency to forget how early Spike started. And those two really did start making films at the, at the same time. And honestly broke about the same time. Because 86, uh, Spike's dropping She's Gotta Have It and... Uh, Oliver is delivering um, Platoon and Wall Street. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. I mean, Oliver Stone was a very prolific uh, director. And ultimately, I think that, that you know, that period um, that's covered in the uh, DVD set that I have, because I own two copies of this movie, and it's because I had the opportunity to uh, get back an old box set I had for like less than 20 bucks. And it was everything he made from Salvador uh, up through any given Sunday. And on DVD and Blu-ray, as far as I know, only the director's cut is available. But HBO Max had the theatrical cut for some reason. I'm like, I just want to see what's different. And I couldn't tell. 
<laughs> they were both just as disjointed, and they both felt differently disjointed. But they were both just just as disjointed. You know. I made like a big note that I think was very telling about this film. Mm-hmm. I don't. I couldn't tell if Alfonso <coughs> knew what movie he was making. He originally he started off wanting to adapt. The original script was something called Monday Night, and he also was trying to adapt this book that was written by a uh, a teen doctor that was um, I think it was called something like you know this that bruise will heal or something, and it was like the shocking confessions of you know the teen doctor for the most notorious like it was one of those long titles on nonfiction books, and separately uh, John Logan who um. Is a is a good screenwriter, even if you know he doesn't always have the uh, best films. Um, but he's worked on some interesting stuff. Like he worked on um, Martin Scorsese's Aviator and Hugo. He wrote Sweeney Todd. Uh, he uh, was one of the screenwriters on Skyfall. And this may also shock you. He wrote Gladiator. Actually, that doesn't. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. But and so the amount so. John, Logan was, I think, one of the ones making the connections between foot, you know, athletes as the modern day gladiators. And then Oliver Stone took a big ripping snort of coke and was just like, "Yeah, let's do that." <laughs> um, that so, does actually make a lot of sense. And they they tried to tell a cohesive story. I think uh, they failed. <laughs> They failed. Um, but uh, how much in, uh, involvement do you think the NFL gave Oliver Stone? None. Not a single. <laughs> they actually helped a little. They gave him some game tapes to watch, and then they found out what exactly he wanted to do. And they were like, no, not just no, but hell no. And that's why we have, instead of the Super Bowl, the Pantheon Cup. And instead of the Dallas Cowboys, you have the Dallas Knights. Which, fun fact, I believe friends of mine that I went to high school with are extras in some of the scenes that were shot in Texas Stadium. Oh, well. You know, Um, okay, because one of my notes was, and I quote, what kind of uh, football are they playing? Professional, amateur, because I wasn't sure. And every single one of their games looked like a high school football game. That's about how good the quality was. Yeah, well, and some of the players were real football players, but uh, with with minor exceptions, they weren't NFL players. They were arena football players. That makes so much sense. Yeah, but this is supposed to be the NFL. That Believe makes it or less not, sense. This, yeah, this is supposed to be the NFL. <laughs> I mean, mostly it's just like the quality of the actual football games themselves that made me question that because they yeah. just didn't look like professional football games. Yeah. So you should you should borrow my Blu-ray of this movie and watch the HBO making of because they talk about this movie like Oliver was finally telling the truth about the way the NFL is run. (laughs) (laughs) Like it is so funny watching. Uh, Lawrence Taylor, who was a real football player, and Jim Brown, who was a real football player and now an analyst, sitting there lying <laughs> to, the, to the camera. It's like, <laughs> this is the real game. 
Sure. I do think that that what was surrounding it was real. Like mm-hmm. all the interactions in the locker room and that kind of stuff seemed very real to me. Um, yeah. The way the players except, spoke to each other, the things that they were struggling with. But the the only thing I'm going to call shenanigans on is um, throwing a live alligator into the shower. Okay, what was with the alligator? <laughs> okay, um, that particular actor, um, you know, the character he was playing was annoying some of the other players by playing heavy metal in the um, locker room, to which he said a line that made me laugh out so loud so hard. Help, like, Hetfield is God, and we bow down to the monsters of rock. I'm like, oh, my God. Hetfield <laughs> is not a God. You stop that. You stop that right now, sir. <laughs> and exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, you're he, but, but uh, and then he was dancing with the guys in the shower, being funny, and they were like, "You can't dance." And he was like, "All right, I'm gonna make you dance." So he just tosses an alligator in there. <laughs> Meanwhile, the coaches and you know the star players are just sitting there having a con- random conversation at the same time. It's like um, another player just you know tried to assault other players with a live animal that <laughs> I'm pretty sure you cannot domesticate. I'm they were all sure like. All the, everybody else like, yeah, this checked out. <laughs> In a movie that was so nonsensical, I just was kind of like, okay, we're doing this now, I guess. Yeah. Because this movie, up to that point, had already made zero sense to me. That by the time the alligator showed up in the locker room shower, I was just like, okay. Yeah, well, this, this is happening. <laughs> this track. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I absolutely love about this movie, um, and, you know, a lot of movies intercut, you know, what's happening, you know, especially if you've got, you know, scenes in one location. But it just seems like every scene in this movie was unnecessarily intercut. Like, you have players throwing alligators at <laughs> other players. Meanwhile, you know, in the same split second, uh, LL Cool J is talking about how Jamie Foxx is going to blow his, his Nike deal or his Reebok deal or whatever. Yeah, it, it just didn't. Okay, this is the thing. This movie had zero exposition, and mm-hmm. you need some. Like, I know you can be careful about the way that you do it, and John, if you bring up the wire, <laughs> <laughs> you need at least some level, you know, to invest your audience in what's going on. The The movement with characters in this film, from one character to another, with no real background, nothing like connecting them in... It, it tried to tell too many stories at once. It just, it became very hard to get invested. Yeah. It, it was like they, they took like a, a show like The Wire and then <laughs> instead of telling it in 10 episodes, they tried to tell it in, in, in like two and a half. And it's like, you can't, can't do that. I, I do mildly disagree. I think this film has a lot of exposition. It's just not good exposition. Because. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. They're in Florida, right? Yes. Yeah, it's like and that. It's like, how do we pro- tell the audience we're in Florida? Well, we'll throw an alligator in the shower. That'll, that'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll catch on. Well, I mean, they're, they're the Miami Sharks. Uh, Miami does play a lot into this, um, be, you know, because there are. There's a lot of scenes that took that do take place and show off uh, Miami. Also, this movie has uh, gets things wrong. Like 
uh, you know how professional uh, football teams have crosstown rivals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, no. uh, the Sharks have a cross. There are two professional teams in Miami. <laughs> two. It happens all the time. What are you talking about? Yeah. The closest thing that any honest NFL team. Well, actually, no, I take that back. It did not used to exist, but technically, the NFL now has uh, the Rams and the Chargers, and they're both in LA. I wouldn't yeah. say they're like specific rivals, but they no, because um, they're not even the same conference. But they do mm-hmm. compete against each other. So yeah, yeah, it's well, and also you have in the in MLB you have the White Sox, Cubs, and um, you know on you know in the. The jet is it the Jets or the Giants that play in Jersey? Neither one. <laughs> oh, well, one used to play in Jersey. Well, I, did, I mean, I don't know if the Jets have a field in Jersey, maybe, but they are the New York Jets. So, yes, but my point was, even though they're the New York something, that's not where their stadium was. One of them was based out of Jersey, but they were still the New York something because outside of the Devils, no one's going to go see the New Jersey anything. <laughs> That's right. I said it. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. So um, I, I want to ask one of the questions that I I sent you to a text like days ago. Whenever I was watching the film for only the second time this week. Um, oh, you were right. Sorry. Yeah. Is Tony a good coach? Yes. You think so? I think he is. There, there think... are moments where I'm like, I don't think he is. I think he's just oh like I think he was I think he is a good co- coach that is now on burnout level. And I think that's the whole thing. They yeah. just didn't convey it very well in the story. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the thing he's just burnt out. Yeah. I think he's a good coach in the sense of like he looks at the game as a whole in the way that a good coach should and mm-hmm. While I agree that you have to be open to trying new things, you've you've got to push the boundaries, you've got to progress. All Mm. of those things work. But I do think that there's nothing wrong with the fundament, with having a better understanding of the fundamentals of the game. And looking at the game is more than just, we've got to constantly be doing something new. And I, I don't know. I, nobody in this film was perfectly right or perfectly wrong. The the only thing is, I felt like the film at a lot of points was trying to make Tony the hero and Cameron Diaz's character Christina out to be the villain. But um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Bill Simmons' side whenever you know they did they talked about this movie on his show where it's like you know they've got a like aging quarterback at 38 gets injured and her immediate thought is. Who's available and trying to look into, you know, who can step into that role? I, I think, I think she had a lot of right instincts, except for maybe trying to move the um, team from Miami to LA, which I think is not all, a terrible idea, considering there's two, apparently two Miami teams. <laughs> <laughs> and according to the end of the movie, she probably could have gone to Albuquerque. That wouldn't have been a bad idea. Well, I think they, they definitely start framing her that way, but. Throughout the movie, it kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah. With the uh, with, I, I think it's just one of those that after a little bit you start realizing, oh, just everybody has a different way of looking at things. She's looking at it through a business yeah. standpoint. Yeah. 
And he's like, oh, no, this is how the game should be played. You know, you know how we uh, we <laughs> negotiated a contract, you old man. We sat down, we had a beer, we shook hands. That that's it. That's all you did. <laughs> well, that's all he needed. <laughs> oh, um, um, I think this is the. I was like, I forgot. Cameron Diaz used to be a pretty decent actress. I would say Cameron Diaz is still a decent actress, except she just chooses not to act anymore because. I think she had too many flops in a row, and she's just like, she's just kind of done now. Like, she kind of got out of the game. But, you know, that run from this and something about Mary and uh, The Mask. Yeah, because I know. think this is the last movie I really enjoyed watching her in. Yeah. Now, I could... Yeah, I, I know you're not a huge fan of Charlie's Angels, but by all, all accounts, she was apparently fun in those movies. Um I didn't see the Ridley Scott movie that apparently ended her career, and that was, you know, I think unfortunate. She was good in The Holiday. Yeah, The Holiday, which we have covered on Surviving Chick Flicks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I think she, I think she had more knowledge than they gave her credit for, but I will say mm-hmm. this was very progressive, and one of the most unrealistic things about this film is the idea of a female GM, and especially one that young. Well, yeah. Yeah. Also, one of my favorite parts of this movie, uh, Oliver Stone crowbarring himself into uh, into the film as one of the announcer or one of the analysts. Oh yeah, I was like, oh yeah, that is Oliver Stone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. delivering the classic line: "Any given Sunday, people, anything can happen." Also, his character's name was Tug. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have to say one of my favorite parts is what happened to be the scene where they gave the donation to Dare because <laughs> there's nothing else that could have aged this movie more. Oh, God. <laughs> well, actually, Dare is super relevant again because they uh, crept out of whatever hole we finally buried them in to bitch about euphoria. <laughs> <clears throat> it's like, it's like y'all, y'all do realize that this uh, is not us saying this... Uh, is cool, right? Y'all get that, right? Yeah, but this is a this is a warning. You get that, right? But teenagers no? aren't going to see it that way. It's like, when have teenagers ever seen anything the way it's supposed to happen? <laughs> Look, let's not throw all teenagers teenagers under the bus. Be considering um, so many adults have not gotten that Travis Bickle and uh, <laughs> the main character from King of Comedy and the Joker and Tyler Durden and all these other characters. Or not, not the heroes. heroes. They were <laughs> they were a warning. <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, also like teen pregnancy spiked after teen mom. So teenagers were brilliant enough to look at that and go, Oh, I want to do that. That looks cool. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, adults do the same thing too. They're we're not much better sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of terrible adults, James Woods. <laughs> <laughs> A man who, to date, still has not fallen for any of my shenanigans and blocked me on Twitter. Because I've tried. Why is he my favorite character in this movie? <laughs> His character's good, and he's playing James Woods. You have no idea how accurate that is, because uh, they had scenes for him written, and he delivered them as written, but also Oliver let him improvise. So... I feel like some of the more horrific lines coming out of his mouth were not the character of just James Woods being James Woods. Yeah. 
Yeah. And this is before he uh, switched political parties. But so just let you know, he's been an asshole no matter how he voted. Oh, (laughs) he's been an asshole his whole career. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And I didn't know that about him. I just thought, oh, yeah, he's he's that's what he's known for playing. I was like, no, that's just kind of James Woods. He just Mm -hmm. oozes asshole. Yeah. It's like James Wood is not a prick because he's a re- Republican now. He was always a prick. He's just now a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> he was always the worst person in the room. But um, there were, but you know, this will come up later. But he did have some great lines in this mo- in this movie. Um, and I, I I loved the balance between him and Matthew Modine as the uh, internist and how. Even by the end, any doctor, you know, can be anyone can be corrupted in this world, and you see the fall of a good man there. Yeah, there was kind of a similar thing going on, and I just I don't know. I haven't decided if I liked it or not. This kind of it was almost like a stereotypical thing they did with um, Jamie Foxx's character that it was kind of like. Hey, we're gonna make this. That that's what got me. Is I don't he don't feel like he was making one cohesive film. It was like, hey, here's a film about a uh, semi washed up coach who's gonna become the hero and teach all these new people that are trying to tell him he's too old to play the game that he still knows what he's doing, and then a story about a kid from kind of modest upbringings that maybe kind of started out humble and then fame and power corrupted him. Yeah. Also, fame and power corrupted him really quick because super movie, quick. Yeah. Because you know, he's he goes from the third string quarterback and like three weeks later he's putting out a rap single. It's just like someone needs to pump some brakes here. Yes. Also, um, not to give away my worst line, but if it was in the Willie Beeman song, that was my worst line. <laughs> because I watched this movie three times, and I've seen this movie multiple times. Every single time that video has happened, I cringe so hard. It's bad. It's really, really bad. Yeah. And I don't know that an NFL quarterback would be caught doing that, except for possibly Rob Gronkowski, who could, who could actually get away with it. Can Gronk rap, though? <laughs> Gronk doesn't need to be able to rap. That's fair. <laughs> I'm um, pretty sure he tried stand-up comedy at one point. So did John Mayer. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like Rob Gronkowski would probably be more successful at that than John Mayer. I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I think my favorite part of the Willie Beeman rap would have to be, I got the lady, I keep the ladies' paws creaming. <laughs> and it is like, it, and the way it's, filmed and edited and I'm like is this a single or is this a metrics video uh, commercial because if it's the latter it's super inappropriate the whole thing felt like a acid trip yeah <laughs> like like um Sam you're not going to get this but Joseph my I think that the fake commercials in uh Spike Lee's bamboozled were more appropriate oh god <laughs> Than Willie Beeman's metrics commercial. That's bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and also 
at least those you knew going in it was a satire this is supposed to be serious but you know what's what's funny is given the kind of like very weird structure of this film uh the acting is, the <laughs> acting is really great the script is really great like <laughs> No, well, I mean, no. Does everybody do a great job in it? No, obviously no. not. You're not going to bat 100. No. But I think Jamie Foxx did a really good job. I think Al Pacino did a good job. I actually think Cameron Diaz did a fairly good job. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. I, I, I think Cameron Diaz gave the best performance in the movie. I think that Al Pacino was just doing a t- much more tired version of his character from Heat. Um, he just didn't have the great ass line in it. No. They got some great snaps. <laughs> but, but, but there are moments in this movie that do kind of remind you that Al Pacino used to be an actor and not just yelling all the time. Oh, how did y'all feel about the nudity in this movie? Um, I don't think y'all want my two cents on that. So, you know, just... I well, mean, oh, um, I want it. <laughs> Well, I you know, I figured after Showgirls, like nudity should just not even like affect us anymore. <laughs> no, but I remember seeing it in theaters, and with my mom of all people, <laughs> one this huge dick just walking. <laughs> us yeah. This is not embarrassing at all. Like, no, nope. fourteen years old, and uh, and that was on, and I can only imagine how big it was on the big screen. Oh, it was huge. <laughs> Yeah. Fucking huge. Well, bearing in mind pretty much most of the time, although in the 90s they may have been real, a lot of times they were prosthetics. Um, Doesn't matter. Um, yeah. I'm just going to paint y'all a little allegory and take from it what you will. <clears throat> there are plenty of things in the world that are like works of art. You know, they have absolutely no function, they serve no purpose, they do nothing. But they're aesthetically pleasing. They look gorgeous, right? And then there are things in the world like hammers and nails and... and <laughs> I'm so horrified. Like, where is this going? I have no idea. And screwdrivers. You know, things that are not aesthetically pleasing. They don't look good, but they serve a very important function. Mm-hmm. I'm... That's all I'm going to say. Just just take that from that what you will. I think I you have, need to expand upon are, that to dig yourself out of whatever hole this is now. <laughs> and there are a lot of women that agree with me. Because women have many a discussion about this. <laughs> well, in the other one is whatever Elizabeth Berkeley's character bends over in the bed. And I was just like, I have never seen a vagina that close before at that age. Well, Oh well, this is a, see, this is a companion piece um, to Showgirls because the only thing we didn't see of her in that film was her labia, and now the package is complete. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of which, she was a that girl in this film. I know we haven't done one of those in a while, but mm-hmm. I knew I had seen her before in probably more than one thing, and I could not place her. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen a lot of Elizabeth Berkeley, and I mean that in every possible way. <laughs> oh, 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 my God. That was her. Yeah. yeah. You, you did not I hear didn't us recognize just her. Yeah. And 
<clears throat> I don't like to talk about, you know, judge a woman on her looks. But at the same time, I do think that this is the prettiest she's been. And I'm and I'm including Jessie Spano and whenever she got her Versace dress in Showgirls. Yeah, this is uh, she's way prettier in this movie than Showgirls. Mm. Um, did, did Showgirls come post this movie or pre? Before, uh, before. Really, yeah. she got another job. Okay, it is a myth that she didn't work again after Showgirls. She worked a lot. It was just the quality of stuff took an absolute nosedive. It was gotcha. well, yeah, yeah. I don't think she was taken as seriously no, as she was she wanting was, to be. Yeah. And that's why she's in a small part here as a hooker versus, you know, the star. And yes, I did the uh hand motion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you know, th- this was at the point in her career where I have, you know, it's a bit part. And you may have to get naked again. <laughs> I, I will say the nudity, yeah. it, you know, even though it, it was what it was, it was not gratuitous. It didn't seem out of place. It yeah. made perfect sense. Could you have done with it, done the exact same film without it? Yes, no. you absolutely yeah. could have. But yeah. so didn't it wasn't like gratuitous. No. Didn't, and, you know, back on the all the things room, in this movie. Oh, is it, out of all the things in this movie, the nudity did not take you out of it. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, unless you unless you were a heterosexual male and you uh, didn't pay money to see a dick, even though you were an athlete and you saw dicks all the time because okay, it was in the locker see, room. this this goes for women as well. See the allegory <laughs> I pointed no. to earlier. No, you see. This has nothing to do with the allegory. Your allegory is something different. There, you know, this is about the compulsive heterosexuality that is drilled into all men. And whenever you, you know, are outside of a, any situation where it's normal and you see a penis, you're supposed to feel something ob- about it, and it's usually negative. And I just oh, went, um, yeah, okay, I got because you. I know people that walked out of Twenty Eight Days Later. Because there was a shot of a naked man in a um, hospital. Well, I know people that would. Uh, Seems excessive. That, yeah. Or they were watching a movie that was for gay people because they watched Watchmen. And it's like there was a bunch of blue penises. It was like out of all that movie, you probably saw it for a total of two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have to tell this story about the first time that I ever saw anything like that in a film. Um, oh, a, sh- a schmeckle? <laughs> yeah. So um, we're just moving past that. This <laughs> <laughs> is an odd choice of all the different words. Um. Anyway. Well, so, it, it's the Sabbath for the you know it's Shabbat. It's you know the Sabbath for the Jewish people. So you know. we were. I was watching. And I cannot remember with how many people. It may have just been one friend. It might have been multiple. I don't know. I want to say it was multiple. And we decided to watch. Zach and Mary make a porno. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, you know, we're thinking, and I can't remember, I was probably in college or something. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, we were all thinking, oh, Seth Rogen, you know, it's going to be funny. And the movie goes along. And I thought the most disturbing scene in the film was definitely going to be the. The Dutch rudder. Yeah. The icing on the cake scene. 
Um, anyway, and then I get to the end. And that just totally caught me off guard. <laughs> because I definitely thought that would have happened a lot sooner in the film. And you kind of think you're in the clear. And they wait no. till the very end of the film. Well, the thing about it is, is that's Kevin Smith making that movie. And if anyone's going to show his dick in that movie, it's going to be Jason Muse. <laughs> so. Yes. And I would not have surpri- been surprised if that was not a prosthetic. I, I am surprised that Kevin has not delivered a 30-minute monologue about the realness, of the, the realness or lack thereof of Jay's dick in a movie. Because, you know, he, he's never been quiet or shy or brief about anything. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> but anyways, that was my story. Yeah. I'm just so sad that the first dick you saw in a movie was J- Jason Mewes. <laughs> not, not that I'm saying there are essential dicks in cinema to check out. It's just, of all the ones, the most random... <laughs> Star of Mallrats, Jason Mewes. I'm just thinking John's next list. <laughs> that should be the next list you make. Um, I'm gonna go with no. <laughs> well, there was a recent conversation about surviving dick flicks. Our first live episode. <laughs> Our first live episode will be at the Apache Drive-In. <laughs> now that makes two podcasts in the last five years that that drive-in has been mentioned on. Oh my gosh. This is not the turn I expected this episode to take. <laughs> no. Well, to be fair, if the movie we watched gets to go on random tangents that have nothing to do with anything, why can't we? <laughs> well... We always do that. <laughs> that is extremely fair. This yeah. movie made no sense, so we don't have to either. Yeah. So, um, so Dennis Quaid is <laughs> trying to get back to this movie. <laughs> um, so Dennis Quaid, I, I, you know, this is his second role as a quarterback. I thought he did great. I think this is. Uh, I I don't I hate saying this, but I think this may be my favorite Dennis Quaid movie. Mm-hmm. I never thought. No, because, I've never really thought about it. Yeah, and and that is sad because Dennis Quaid, the less crazy of the two Quaid brothers, um, whose son, fake. yeah, whose son, whose son was, is phenomenal. His son is in Five Cream to be covered by this podcast sometime this Ooh. calendar year. Yeah. I was thinking um, more like boys, but I did not realize he was in Five Cream. He is in Five Cream. He is, and I think he's very good in Five Cream. Um, I I can more easily come up with a, like a ranking of like the ten best Randy Quaid performances because his stuff, whatever you think about Randy Quaid, you know, uh, personal, you know, in the real world, post Brokeback Mountain, whenever he went fucking Looney Tunes. And I still am not 100% convinced that his Twitter feed is not satire. Um, <laughs> but Dennis Quaid, he's been, you know, he's been acting as, you know, as long as Randy. And he has been in some fantastic films. But I, I don't think, gun to my head, I could go through and do a, what are the 10 best Dennis Quaid films? I mean, 
with you know with and I'm saying that off the top of my head. Obviously, if we were just scrolling through his IMDb, we could probably come up with a list, and I could probably come up with a film I like better than this. But I think just his sheer performance and how he there are moments in this film where he is trying so hard to be pure, where he literally said the kid doesn't give a gee whiz about something. <laughs> but I. But he does a lot with this role. And, you know, he's in a marriage that I'm honestly surprised that this film didn't end with him ser- serving his wife divorce papers. <laughs> but I just think he was a shining star. Actually... Oh, God. Oh, I did. You cut out. I think he was too, but it was essentially not a massive role. But mm-hmm. also, I really liked the choice they made with her character in this film because. <clears throat> A lot of times, especially in sports movies, they're going to portray a relationship with the guy being an abusive asshole. And then, and well, there's a reason of, for that. Uh, no, there is. There's a legitimate reason for that, and I am mm-hmm. not knocking that. There is a legitimate reason. Oh, and Jamie yeah. Foxx kind of served that pur- that purpose. But I do think that people forget that women can do the same. Mm-hmm. And there, I think this was kind of a. Uh, <clears throat> A good example of that. Yeah, there are there are things that we don't really talk about a lot, and need to because even though it is often the cishet man hitting a cishet woman, we don't talk about the fact that uh, women are just as can be just as abusive as men, and that there's domestic violence, but also in same sex relationships like that almost never gets discussed about. It doesn't, and you know, and and I'm not sitting here saying that that should have been the movie Oliver Stone made. I'm just saying that yeah. I I agree with you that you know it was a nice change to see the woman slapping the man instead of vice versa. And, right, and you honestly you feel really bad for him. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and it, it's a it's a defenseless place for him to be in. Also, yeah. when he was dealing with what he was dealing with with his career too, which was probably taking a physical and mental toll on him. Uh, that that conversation that he has with Tony on the steps of Dan Marino's house, because that's where they filmed it. Um, <laughs> when he's talking about, you know, he can't hold a spoon. He has um, gaps in his memory, like he, you know, can't remember stuff. He's always on painkillers for his neck, his his elbow, his rib. He's like, but I would go, but he would go out there again, no questions asked. And I'm I'm going to sit here and say that that's maybe the big reason the NFL um, pulled any kind of help for this movie because this movie does not flinch away, and I think that's one of the admirable things about this mishmash of a story is and it's, it's addressing the, the concussion controversy and it's addressing, you know, what this game does to these people. And, um, I remember vividly, um, sports illustrated, well, it's either sports illustrated or ESPN magazine did a story on these legendary players who, you know, can barely get around, can barely function, you know, you could almost make this a double feature with um, Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler and just talk, you know, just do this depressing five hours about what, you know, athletics can, you know, what, enter- what entertainment does 
to the human body. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the admirable things about this film. And one of the things I really like, it, the, it's very clear to me that the makers of this film have little to no understanding about how the game of football is played, but have a very, very good understanding of the behind-the-scenes aspects yeah. of professional football, what the players go through. Like, it was a little bit, it was a little bit ahead of its time, but... That's also part of the problem, it, and what I mean when I say Oliver Stone didn't really know what movie he was making is because I think he just tried to do too much. Yeah. Well, and also, um, you are right that um, Oliver Stone and John Logan uh, probably don't have a great understanding of football, even though uh, Stone is a lifetime, lifelong 49ers fan. Um <clears throat> But, and John Logan was the first to admit, like, I don't know shit about football. But um, this is based on source material written by actual former NFL players. And in fact, one of the seven uncredited screenwriters um, turned consultants for the film was a former player. But, I mean, the the only people to get credit uh, for the script was Stone and Logan, just because <laughs> that's the way the Writers Guild works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think the off the um, field stuff in this film was much more effective than the actual yeah. game. Yeah, and uh, funny enough, for like the European cuts of this film, they they cut out a lot of the game footage, like um, stuff like the penalties, because they're like, <laughs> this is so pander. I mean, not pandering. Um, you know, when you talk down to someone, but they cut it out because Europeans don't understand the rules of the NFL. That was literally the the the, the reason. That was the reason. <laughs> well, yeah, I can see why they would do that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Because football, this version of football is pretty much mostly an American thing. Yeah. And uh, even though now the NFL does... Uh, force the occasional game on the UK because they play a few games in London. Um, things like the Super Bowl get televised around the world. So, I mean, just because, you know, I don't think it has less to do with the fact that it's not as popular. I think just uh, they're more concerned with their own sports, you know, kind of like us and our, our uh, joke that the World Series is a World Series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we know the movie that it, that is, but you want to talk about the movie that almost was? Yes. Okay. Uh, first up, Oliver Stone was not the first choice to direct this movie. Hmm. Who was then? Clint Two Takes Eastwood. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, this would have been such a different movie. Yeah. Actually, actually, that that is a partial truth because. Clint Eastwood was actually offered Al Pacino's part first. I mean, Clint Eastwood has the ability to kind of do whatever he wants, but this, Clint Eastwood's films as a director typically are a lot more slow and ponderous. And also, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Focused. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it would be an, a completely different film. Um, first of all, there probably wouldn't have been a ginormous penis, 
on a, on the on the big screen in Clint Eastwood's version. True. I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> also, Al Pacino, not the first choice. You want to know who they offered it to? De Niro. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I and, and don't get me wrong. I love De Niro. I don't see the locker room speech coming out of him as well as, as it did Pacino. You know, now I kind of want to see a football movie where De Niro and Pacino are rivals coaches in the Super Bowl. Please no. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I kind of want to see that. <laughs> oh, I forgot that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Foxx was not the original choice for Willie Beeman. Someone else was cast, and because production took so long, they had to drop out because they had other commitments. Well, at least not. Just, no. Oh, okay. That 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 would have been interesting, except for the fact that you know one of the things. Whenever we did Major League, they had to speed up footage of him because he can't actually run that fast. Oh wow! Yeah, I was just no. He was popular at that time as well. He was, but someone slightly more popular. Someone that the kids of 1999 would appreciate. Who? Puff Daddy. Yeah, I don't see it. <laughs> he got the role. He he had huh. to back out because production was out. But he was um, he was originally cast as Willie Beeman. Also, Cuba Gooding Jr. was offered role, the, the role. And for some inexplicable reason, Chris Tucker. I can see why both of those, because at that time, yeah. they were hot. Yeah, but that's okay, because uh, Chris Tucker and Robert De Niro would go on to do a football movie together, kind of. I mean, it was more a movie about mental health, but, you know. It, it plays a role. Foot, foot, football was kind of involved. <laughs> <laughs> Especially betting on football. Um, yeah. uh, you know who else, you know who was offered uh, Cat Rooney? No, who? George Clooney. Yeah, no. Also, um, and I'm going to say this in the most blasphemous way possible, Jesus was put into this film and cut out. Jim Caviezel was in this movie and they cut him out as Al Pacino's son. They cut out because really? or what? Or you don't know? Um, probably because that went, meant the movie was three and a half hours. <laughs> and not just because um, <laughs> on the Blu-ray, there's quite a few deleted scenes. Oh wow! Yeah, just and did I watch did any Adam of them? Ford? No, I I can imagine the original cut of this movie was three and a half hours. Uh, and then someone said, um, "Trim this shit," and I'm assuming that they were a um, a Warner Brothers exec. Also, and this one disappoints me. Henry Rollins was offered a role, but it, I don't know what. But it was for a football player. You know that. Well, the, uh, the problem is. It would be fine if another hour would make this movie make sense, but I don't think yeah. it would. Um, we typically, uh, you know, we're not the only podcast that does this, but we uh, do typically uh, bring up Roger Ebert from time to time. Does anyone want to guess his star out of four rating for this movie? One. Three. No. Yes. He gave this movie three out of four stars, and he says, I guess I recommend this movie because the dramatic scenes are worth it. Pacino has some nice heart-to-hearts with Quaid and Fox, and the psychology of the veteran coach is well captured in the screenplay by Stone and Logan. But if some studio executive came along and made Stone cut down 
his movie to two hours, I have the strangest feeling it wouldn't lose much of substance and might even play better. <laughs> yes, I actually think that that is a perfect way to put it. Yep. Yeah, this is this is one of those movies. It's like you need, that is too long, and I think you know, going scene by scene, you could figure out what needed to be cut because there is a lot of shit in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and also you know, with a cast this big and trying to give all these characters, you know, their moment. It just pads this running time. Like I didn't need didn't need to care about LL Cool J's, you know, need, needing to hit so many yards to get some kind of advertising deal. That didn't matter. Lawrence Taylor's part, you know, about the concussion and having to sign a waiver that you know basically frees the the team from liability if he gets paralyzed or dies on the field. That had more dramatic weight. So more of that, maybe a little bit more of the doctor. I don't need like your key characters in this movie are Tony and Christina and Cap and Beeman. And if you have to have one more character, give it to Lawrence Taylor. Everyone else just doesn't matter. Yeah, they're they're more background characters. Yeah. I mean, I love Elizabeth Berkeley, uh, but that shit was unnecessary. Um, you know, definitely trim the fucking Willie Beeman rap. My God. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, a lot of this was unnecessary, and it, it just yeah. didn't advance or add to the story. No, yeah. So I think at this point, do we want to just move into our categories? Because I, I think we have gone in circles and gotten the point across that this movie is a disjointed mess. <laughs> yes. No, I, don't, um, I don't think we've got. Great idea. You don't think we got the point across, Joseph? No, I don't think so. (laughs) One more hour? Yeah, one more hour at least. One more hour. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I want to start with this question because I kind of have, like, I guess it's one of the only times I've noticed it. I shouldn't say one of the only times. One of the only times I've noticed it enough to mention it on uh, on the show is the soundtrack. So let's if y'all don't mind, let's start with the Did John Like the Soundtrack? Oh, well, I, I, I could be a dick and ask which soundtrack because this movie had two. And I'm not counting the score. This movie had so much in it. Um, Dre, Dre uh, owes his ex-wife some money, so this is a good way <laughs> to, you know, to recoup some losses. Oh, no, I was saying that I got, we, we had a soundtrack that was just kind of oh, yeah. corresponds with the halftime shows. Yeah. Complete accident. Uh, I believe it was meant to be, Joseph. Meant <laughs> to fucking be. Yeah. <laughs> listeners should just, listeners and probably Sammy more than the listeners be happy I didn't do this entire episode. That's <laughs> Al Pacino. Hoo-ah. Okay. So oh, and I, I I think this is fairly fitting in an Al Pacino movie, but I um I don't know about y'all, but I think there is at least one, if not two, you can't handle the truth lines in this movie. Uh, there is a you can't handle the truth speech in this movie. I'm going to go with the, the locker room speech, which has been called Peace with Inches. Um, I, I would say that is, you know, up there with the great lines, you know. 
it was a good halftime speech. It was. Um, but I would also say any given Sunday, which came from Burt Bell, who actually is is credited with coining that phrase. Well, it's all it's uh, according to my sources, it's allegedly uh, based on an actual speech that was given, and the person that. Uh, gave the speech was allegedly in the movie but there's also no record of the speech but it was um uh, yeah the um Pacino speech in the um that he gave uh was apparently based on an actual speech from NFL coach Marty Schottenheimer who whose son I believe is also a coach maybe oh somehow yeah but uh he gave it to the Cleveland Browns so it was probably wasted um <laughs> Come at me. <laughs> uh, but uh, what else do you think is in the... What else do you think is uh, worthy of the uh, uh, You Can't Handle the Truth Award, as we call it? I don't know. It? I kind of thought that speech that Al Pacino gave to Jamie Foxx's character um, at his house, and then when he... I, I, just that whole moment with the, you know, the game has to be about more than winning. I thought mm-hmm. that kind of could have slid into a You Can't Handle the Truth moment. Yeah, I, the the only thing the only argument I have about any line in this movie getting that award is tip is because I don't really hear a lot of lines from any given Sunday used in pop culture the way you can't handle the truth is or these go to eleven you know they haven't permeated permeated the actual vernacular of the you know general public you know whenever it transcends the movie that's what i think although i do kind of agree with you at the same time that there are some points there is some stuff that even if it doesn't go far you know beyond the movie qualifies and, I, and i'll give that I, I will also revisit this tangent whenever we do network again <laughs> <laughs> whatever year that happens to be that would be a good one to do too it would be Okay, so we've added a couple segments, um, one of them being the question of, does this film pass the Bechdel test? I honestly don't really know. It is a, it is a mostly male-dominated film. So. Yeah. And, well, I mean, Cameron Diaz it do- does dominate, but she is the reason I do say that this movie passes the Bechdel test. But it is a photo fuck finish <laughs> that she does because the only scene of a woman talking to another woman, um, not about a man, is briefly at the end. She talks to her mom as her whole world's crumbling. <laughs> her mom being played by legendary Anne Margaret, you know, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess technically it qualifies. Yeah, I mean. And th- and that's why you know we've said every, I, I, or I've said every week that the Bechdel test is considered usually a good start because I you could make the case that this movie barely passes the Bechdel test. Um, do we have a what happens next? Because you know we know that Tony finally retires and leaves uh, Miami after three decades. Which has there been a single coach that's ever coached? Um, a team for three decades, Sammy. I, I look Bill to Belichick. you at this. Bill Belichick getting close. All right, but we know that uh, 
he he is now reinvigorated and young again, and he's gonna go. He's gonna go with that new expansion team out in Albuquerque, and he's and I'm taking Willie Beeman with him. Gonna make him a franchise player. You know. Yeah, my prediction of what happens next is Willie Beeman flames out. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was what I would, um, I'm going to go with uh, Cap uh, retires, becomes an analyst. And, uh, I'm going to go with Cap becomes the next Tom Brady. Cap is lucky he can walk after this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cap Cap is gonna go join Jim Brown over on uh, and talk about you know who's playing the next week. <laughs> also, we neglected I, I neglected to mention him in the cast list, but uh, '90s legend uh, Bill Bellamy was in this movie. Also, this is uh, maybe the end of anybody remembering who the hell Bill Bellamy was. <laughs> I know that name, but I can't picture his face. He did shit on MTV. He was in this movie. Um, he was one of the players. I know that doesn't quite narrow it down. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> no. But unless you were a 90s kid, and I mean watching MTV you know, and retaining all of it, Bill Bellamy means nothing. <laughs> and even then, Bill Mel- Bellamy didn't mean a whole lot. It would be like, oh, look, it's Kennedy from MTV. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, oh wait, let me update her career. Oh look, it's Kennedy from Fox Business News. <laughs> <laughs> also, did not see me referencing Kennedy on this episode, but here we are. Also, she follows me on Twitter, or at least used to. Okay, so, so. do y'all have? Or I guess we should move into our um, last couple of segments. Best line, worst line. Do y'all have uh, best lines? <laughs> I got a couple. <laughs> I do too. Joseph, why don't you go first? He says as he's pulling up his <laughs> notes that he took. <laughs> well, we didn't really talk about the character that uh, Dr. Cox plays. Oh, you mean Jim Rome? I mean, yeah. um, whatever his character was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, he, not at all Jim Rome. <laughs> uh, he, he had a line that I thought was really funny. He yeah. said, it's like my ex-wife, 21 different personalities, and then seven of them hated me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, Which, uh, uh, before you oh, go on to the next line, fun fact, this is actually the sixth Oliver Stone-John C. McKinley joint. Really? Yep. Platoon, Wall Street, I, Talk I Radio, it, this movie, Nixon, and um, I said Wall Street, right? Yes. I know I missed one, but yeah, he's been in six Oliver Stone films. Oh, wow. I, I did not realize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my other oh, one, born on the Fourth of July. He was in Born on the Fourth of July. He was in that. He, he mm-hmm. I forget he's in those movies. Yeah, because this was the era where he was a that guy, and you know, it's only later he becomes Doctor Cox. Very true. Hmm. Uh, my last one I have is from the Commissioner, uh, which is played <laughs> by Charlton Heston. I honestly believe that woman would eat her own young. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's that. That's yeah. a good one. I, well, to, to pay this movie a rare compliment, um, I love the fact that this movie balanced old stars and new stars because, you know, you, you have the old Hollywood era of uh, Heston and Anne Margaret. And also, 
you know, they did the same with the sport because there's a lot of like NFL coaches that are, are former NFL players that are playing coaches in this movie. The most notice, noticeable and recognizable is, of course, Dick Butkus. <laughs> um, so I, I have two lines from, uh, from James Woods, or as he's credited, Dr. Harry Mandrake. Yeah. <laughs> One of them is whenever the second quarterback gets hurt after cap, and he's like, what did he do, fall off the bench? What the <laughs> hell's next, stigmata? <laughs> yeah, that was good. And then he, had, he uh, had a line that he aimed at Matthew Modine, and he says, like, you're the internist, I'm the orthopedist. Remember, bone, muscle, joint, me, runny nose, diarrhea, gonorrhea, pink eye, you. <laughs> <laughs> the player that uh, threw the uh, alligator into the shower, uh, he had a great exchange at one of the party scenes with an old lady, and he asked her if she's married. And he's when she says, "I'm between mar- marriages," he r- responds with, "So what do you do for dick?" <laughs> that was my worst line. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because there were so many others. Yeah, um, but one of my best lines was the uh, "I'm between marriages." Yeah, <laughs> it's. I think almost any line in this movie is either a best line candidate or a worst line candidate, and there is no in between. <laughs> or both somehow. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the what do you do for Dick is a horrible. It is a horrible line. Does it make me laugh every time I hear it? Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> My other one, which is also a horrible line, but it's when he said, "I didn't want you to be the only pussy with his hand raised, Coach." <laughs> that was yeah. <laughs> I had a feeling someone was going to take that line, so that's why I didn't write it down. All right. Are we ready to move on to the good, bad, and the ugly? Well, um, I don't think Joseph and I did our worst lines. Oh, right. And, of course, you know you know how we have the uh, you can't handle the truth for great lines. I uh, am now instilling a, an award for the worst line uh, that is so special that, you know, no one can pick it. And it's literally any line. Any moment from the Willie Beeman rap. <laughs> so we're going to call it the Beeman. That, that's fair. So, so is that your pick? <laughs> uh, no, that's not my official pick, but I did beat on it, up on it late, earlier. And I just do think that we should call the absolute worst line in a movie something that just stands out so bad that all of us, you know, it's a, you know, that all, all, any of the three of us could pick it. I think it's the Beeman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do your, why don't you do your worst line? I had one that I guess it just made me roll my eyes. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Probably because I heard it before. And it's when they were, they have the priest in the locker room. He's like, there's no atheist in the fox. So I was like, uh, I hate mm-hmm. that line. <laughs> I just hate that <laughs> saying. Yeah, it's just yeah, a cliche. Also, uh, since when do teams have their own priests? Um, question. I get, that's one of those things I didn't question. My worst line was also from Dr. Harry Mantrick. <laughs> and it says he's getting fired uh, and he's leaving the uh, girl behind and he just says, fine, just get, stay here and get butt-fucked by 12 Neanderthals. Hmm. And that was the line where I went, oh, James Woods is just playing James Woods now. Also, yeah. I that that line did make me wonder. It was like, did Mel Gibson steal that line whenever he was yelling at his ex girlfriend on the on the phone? 
So yes, we may now move into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Alrighty. Uh, although I think this week we should call it the good, the bad, and the what in the fuck. Because <laughs> there are some things in this movie that I, I think qualify. Um. Yeah. All right. Go for it. Um. All right. I'll. I will start. Um. And this is kind of both a good and a bad. I hate the, how the movie makes Cameron Diaz out to be to be the villain of the movie, but I like the fact that she is just this, you know, for lack of a better term, this tough bitch that can hold her own, that can walk into a a, a locker room and you know, naked athletes don't even, she doesn't even bat an eye that she can go toe to toe with Al Pacino. Um, I mean, you're in it's 90s Al Pacino, um, <laughs> late 90s Al Pacino. But, I mean, she held her own in this movie a lot. Um, I, I, I said I like Dennis Quaid. And I do like that struggle between James Woods and Matthew Modine on how... Oh, really? Um, well, the characters, like... Because um, there's a drop line that uh, Woods delivers, like, you know, you're the only relative I can stomach. Um, oh, I totally missed that. I did too. Yeah, I that completely. Well, you got to remember, I watched this movie three times this week, and also there is so much going on in this movie that if you're not watching it multiple times, which I can't wait to hear Sammy's reaction to her second viewing of this movie, um, a lot does get missed. Uh, Joseph, what about you? <laughs> well, uh, I the good. I really liked how. There were so many actors in this movie, and most for the most part, they did a, a good job or the best they could with some of the stuff they had. Yeah. Because Al Pacino, is being Al Pacino, you can't ask for anything better. Yeah. I mean, uh, Bill Simmons did basically say he is basically playing uh, Vincent Hanna from He just, you know, he yeah. retired from the cops and is now a coach. Yeah, he just transferred jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, as you do. Uh, uh, and everybody seemed to play off each other pretty well. Like, I don't think you had a, a weak actor in the whole bunch. It's just, it's just kind of all over the place, and the tone kind of switches from we don't know what the fuck's going on half the time. Yeah. And it just it doesn't focus on it, fo- it tries to focus on everybody instead of like a certain thing. That's the only problem I that. Yeah. And, I think the ugly part for me would just be like the some of the editing is really nineties. Yeah. Especially at the end of the football, like the very last football game, I was like, Oh my God, somebody was like, we're going to make this nineties, nineties as fuck right now. (laughs) They thought they were changing. They thought they would change in the world. Joseph, they thought they would change. They changed the world somehow. I just don't don't think it was the way they wanted. (laughs) The film school showed this movie about y'all see this. Don't do this. Yeah. This was a bad, this dates the movie. It's like, this is the, this movie is the reason we now have to have epilepsy warnings before certain (laughs) movies. Sammy, do you want to do your best before I do my worst or. Um, yeah, my, I mean, mine's really short. I mean, I, I think that I think that the plot was. It, it it's weird. There is a really good plot in there. It's just hard to decipher it. it it's yeah. good. There's a good script in there. There's really good moments. The halftime speech is great. I really loved all of the actual real life 
problems that NFL players face that do not get the appropriate attention that they should. I liked the emphasis and, and the way all of those things were handled. So, I mean, yeah. I guess that's the good. Yeah. And I, I will defend the um, disjointed nature of the film kind of because I do like films that don't necessarily have an A to B to C plot that are just simply slice of life movies. And this is, this is that, you know, it's a slice of life movie. It's just typically those movies take place over a finite amount of time and not like half a season of football. Right. So, and I, do you think you are Quentin Tarantino? Like <laughs> Tarantino um, has the ability to make a film where you do not know what the hell is going on until the very end of the film. That's like that's how I know I'm watching a Tarantino film. When I have no effing idea what's going on until yeah. the end of the film and I go, Oh, it all makes sense now. Yeah. But he has made that into an art and he is the master of it. And not everybody can do what he can do. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to say something, and you have to remember that if I was to lay out my top five, my top ten directors, Tarantino is either number four or number five. Whenever I say this, um, Tarantino did not come up with that, uh, and there are other directors that probably do it as good or if not better than Tarantino. Tarantino is like a cover band that gives his own spin on it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love that about him. But Tarantino would probably give you a seven-hour breakdown of this movie and why it's probably the best uh, depiction of football ever because Tarantino is fucking weird. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I love the guy, but he, he could probably give you a 12-hour lecture about this movie because he, is prob he probably learned a lot from Oliver Stone. If you look at his original, his first two films, he definitely ate a lot from Scorsese and a bunch of Hong Kong flicks. Mm -hmm. And again, nothing wrong with that. But Tarantino is someone that has made his identity by making a greatest hits mixtape with every film that he makes. It's just, he is the master. I mean, he is a master at that, but you know that's not necessarily... He's not the first, he's not the last, but he's definitely the loudest. <laughs> and remember, he is like my fourth or fifth favorite director of all time, and Oliver Stone didn't make that cut. So let's just, I'm just going to put that out there. Um, so now, let me talk about um, the worst. Um, I mean, do we need to say any more about the disjointed nature of this film? No. No. Um, do we need to say more about how, how in a time capsule this movie is 1999 no we don't there are some things about the actual about this not necessarily structure of the film but basically the world it's depicting like why is the team doctor always next to tony on the sidelines like who is in control of the team is you know why is the doctor got that uh, self-importance, whereas I've worked with teen doctors. They're usually not that close to the sidelines. I There are moments in this film that are also just so ridiculous. It takes you out. Like, I get being mad at your teammate and want to teach him a lesson, but it is the height of hilarity whenever you are taking a chainsaw to his, his SUV and cutting it in half. Um... <laughs> 
I know it's a depiction of the world that they live in, but there is a little bit too much um, casual sexism and homophobia in the film, um, including quite a few uh, F slurs that you may not get unless you have the subtitles on. And of course, my deaf ass has the subtitles on. And also, I just don't like... I like films that typically that can swing back and forth in tone, but this film seems to switch back and forth in tone um, at any given moment. And that was not an intentional pun. <laughs> I, I a thousand percent with, with Sam, agree with Sammy. Like, I don't think Oliver Stone or anyone involved knew exactly what film they wanted to make, so they decided to make all of them. Yeah, I think that's all I got. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Okay, so... <laughs> And uh, Boogie Nights rules apply. Keep it to ten minutes. No, no, no. I don't actually have a lot either. I don't want to harp on. You know, we've talked a lot about it. I don't want to harp on the disjointedness of the movie. I mean, we've we've you know beat a dead horse. We have hammered that point. Yeah, yeah, we've hammered that point home. Um, I think what really it comes down to that bothers me about this is. It took everything that I love about sports films, mm-hmm. and I'm a very big fan of them, in particular films about football. Um, like we were talking about in the pre-show, you're pretty yeah. much playing with house money. Um, yeah. Well, and you watch also, the film. Yeah. Because well, I and also, I, oh, you go, go ahead, ahead and finish your thing. Well, I was going to say, and also, I knew this was an easy sell to you to add this into our series because... You know, if we're going to sacrifice a chick flick a week, what better what better thing could we possibly do? Because you and I do both have a love of sports flicks. You maybe slightly more than me. Yeah, I'm a sucker for them, and not just yeah. one specific kind. But um, I do mm-hmm. have a special place for football, and I I tend to go through football withdrawals when the season is mm-hmm. over. So this is like a good way to to you know. Oh, so you're going to be adding this one to your regular rotation to get to get through. It's like, Mama needs a fix. Yes, <laughs> get, yes, some, get some Willie Beeman up in here. But um, it kind of took everything I loved about sports films and sort of just said, nah, <laughs> we're not doing that. Yeah, um, yeah it just Well, this didn't... isn't a sports movie. This is the Oliver Stone sports movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I, I can't exactly pinpoint it because there was, a, I, I think that's what it is. It took one of my favorite parts of sports films, which is the actual sport, like actually watching the footage of the mm-hmm. sport, watching them. Like, I'm even a fan of the new version of The Longest Yard. Like, I even think that that's a good film. And one of the things I can credit a lot of sports films with where they may be weak on script or plot or acting most of the time they're fairly decent on the gameplay. Like usually that's mm-hmm. the best part and the strongest part of a sports <laughs> film is the actual footage of the sport. And that mm-hmm. is the film's weakest thing is the actual. And there's a lot of it for it to be so weak. <laughs> mm-hmm. And by the way, they had a camera almost everywhere. So that way, not only were you watching the game from the sidelines, you were watching the game on the field, over the field. <laughs> yeah, just like just, the why, I've never why been less interested can. in a football game. <laughs> it made me sad. Yeah. Also, the fact that 
the game didn't have any stakes, and you, you find out that they lost the comp- You know, they got the shutout the next week in like a in like a dropped line instead of this being like they they made this one game out to be like the the fucking Super Bowl, and it wasn't. It was just like the last regular season game. There's that. I think that's really my major complaint. All right, are we ready so, to ask the question? All right, can I ask it like Al Pacino? Oh wait! Yes. Remember oh, right? Wait. That we were going to premiere. Oh, that's right. Uh, Joseph has a oh, new right. segment. Yeah, I, I figured this would be funny. It may not work on all movies because there are some movies you're like, we know what the Rotten Tomato score is. We have a pretty good idea. But on this one, I really did not know. And like, I looked it up right whenever we were starting the show, and I was like, okay, that's that's what that is. Okay. So. What do you think the Rotten Tomato score for this movie is? I'm going to give it an 88. Okay. I'm going to go 35. Oh, wow. Y'all both went in completely different directions. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, this movie has a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. Huh. With yeah. a grand total of like, it has over 100 reviews, so like 120 reviews. Yeah. It's still a pretty good count. I was like, that, I expected it to be at least in the 60s. I, I think when Roger Ebert is going, you know, pointing out that if you lost like an hour of this movie, nothing was lost. I can <laughs> see his fellow critics, you know, kind of agreeing with him. But then again, Roger's a wild card. He is. Yes. Uh, just for fun, what do you think the audience score is on this one? What percentage? Less. I'm going to go with like a 75. Okay. I don't know, like a 48. It is at a 73%. John was extremely close. Ooh. Damn. That, I was like, I was, that was, I was really surprised at how big the audience score was, too. Yeah. Well, and, here, and here's the thing. And I, a lot of people that are football fans um, have praised this movie a lot, but they would have, cons- you know, complaints like, there was a penis in here, and I saw it, and it hurt me. And also, um, you know, I I can see someone that you know, like Sammy, that is a football fan, being annoyed at a lot of the game coverage. But the fact that it, you know, it was a film going into a world that has a built-in audience, I and also with a cast like this, where it's easier to say who's in, not in the movie than in the, who is. Um, yeah, it's. I, I I can see it being you know it it got a B minus to C plus with the audiences. Yeah. So I, yeah. I thought that was I thought that was a very interesting score because I was again I was expecting it to be close to where Sammy was at on the Rotten Tomato yeah. score. I was just like, oh well, it's kind of like smack dab in the middle. <laughs> yep. But are but do we are we smack dab in the middle of this movie? <laughs> Joseph, Sammy. Did you fucking survive any given Sunday? Uh, I want to go. I want to start with Sammy this week. I kind of do too. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, I I have to be honest. I'm still really torn on this, but this is this is what I'm gonna do. Okay. I'm kind of like. You can't give a surviving rating for every one of the seventeen plots in this movie. <laughs> no. I'm kind of like. 
Basically, I've just got to be, this is like a very lawyerly thing of me to say, but I kind of just have to go by precedent. Like, since we have really no criteria for how and when we survive, um, I think it's. I have to judge it based on the the other films I have and have not survived and why I have and have not survived them. So, I, before you, I kind of disagree. I think it's just up to us, you know, how we feel. And, um, Weirdly enough, I saw for reasons that I hate the you know I, things that I hate about this movie. I saw exact the exact scene in a movie last night, and I actually kind of loved it for that. So, comparing this movie to Sleepaway Camp and uh, it's complicated. It's <laughs> you, you can't do that, but um, unless that's just what you want to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, I I hear what you're saying. I think it I think it comes down to this. Okay. Would I watch this movie again? Probably, because I do think think it deserves another watch. And I actually really agree with Robert uh, Roger Ebert that the dramatic scenes in this film are worth watching the film for. Mm-hmm. However, it does get a serious knock for being a football film that I found boring. You know, and, and yeah. for, like I said, for really marring what is some of my favorite parts of sports films and not focusing like, I guess I would be a lot more forgiving of this film if he had just made the film he wanted to make and he'd come out and said, we're not really making a film about football. We're making a film about football players and coaches. Yeah. And what they go through. And they had just focused on that. And they hadn't spent so much time on the field. And they had made that secondary. I think this is a much better film. Having said that. I can see what's good about it. I recognize it. It's not a bad movie. I probably would give it another watch. Um, I would go with Barely Survive. All that being said. Do I think. That comparing this movie to Draft Day. Which we're going to cover. Is this a more accurate portrayal of the football industry? Yes. Would I watch draft day more often? Every single day of the week and twice on Sunday. It is a thoroughly more enjoyable film, in my opinion. Is this a better made film artistically? Debatable. Yes. (laughs) Debatable. No, artistically, yes, it is probably a better made film. Is draft day far more entertaining and interesting because it's a cohesive freaking film with one freaking plot line that you can follow and it's a good one that you are invested in yes but i i think i barely survived but i did survive i want to go next because i love the fact that you and i are 100 percent in agreement on two films and we're only covering (laughs) one of them right now (laughs) um I'm also leaning towards Barely Survived. Um, I have always had an affinity for this film because I was a Oliver Stone fanboy. And I do realize that this is the moment where he ceased being the director that we knew and loved. And also, you know, he would follow this up with a three and a half hour epic about Alexander the Great which was somehow, which somehow, whenever he released the nearly four-hour cut of, 
was more interesting and less boring than the two and an hour and 15 minute cut that he del- delivered. And I was so angry and let down whenever I left the theater on opening night. I, I don't think this is a stain on the legacy of Oliver Stone. I, I just think that this represents not just the end of a style of filmmaking, but also the end of an era for him. And I, I think a lot of my goodwill is because I was already loving stuff like JFK. And I think, I think the doors falls under entertaining, not great, but he's always made interesting films up to this point. Um, as a football movie, I am with you. The, the, the football part of this movie is the least interesting part, except for when someone loses an eye and you know, that only happens in the director's cut. Um, the and the drama about the players is excellent. I mean, and you have these actors at the either at the beginning of their career, you know, the peak point in the career, or the uh, well, he'll team up with Scorsese in twenty years and make another good movie part of his career. Um, let you decipher who that one was, but at the end of the day, yeah, this is a good movie. It compared to draft day. I, I, I would rather watch a draft. I'm with Sammy. I'd rather watch a draft day, even though both of the, both of these movies do represent an insane nonsensical look at the world of football. One of them is just a little bit more fun. Yeah. And this just comes down to personal preference. Like, yeah, this, I would argue this is not a sports film. This is a movie, which you, by the same token, by the way, you could argue this about Draft Day because Draft Day is not, there's no football actually played in that film. That's not what it's about. It's obviously about the draft. Not, not um, true. There's but, game tape. Right. Well, I guess that's fair. But yeah. I can respect that because you know that going into the film. The film doesn't portray mm-hmm. itself as anything. It's not, it doesn't focus. This is a film about athletes. And that's all, and that's, that's all yeah. it really is, and that's what it, what it should have stayed. Sammy, as the Oliver Stone fan in the room, this is not a movie about athletes. This is a movie about warriors. Therefore, it is a movie about soldiers. Therefore, this is somehow a Vietnam metaphor. I just haven't found it yet. I am. I'm honestly not disagreeing with you. Yeah. <laughs> so. Also, uh, just to finalize the draft day, V any given Sunday comparisons. Just remember this: the NFL worked with one of those films. <laughs> exactly. And the other film is probably the reason the NFL was hesitant to work with them in the first place. <laughs> but there is a common theme among all of the um, sports films that I love that are football heavy. Um, not a sports film, but Friday Night Lights, the television show Blindside. Um, we are Marshall was even fairly good. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Is it using the game to tell a larger story? Yes. And the actual footage of the game is Mm -hmm. really good and they can do it well. Like, I think we're going to get to it, but coach Carter is a good example, is a good example of that. I love that movie. That's a movie that I'll just watch like any time and the actual gameplay in the, the actual basketball games are really interesting. They're a big part of the film. And I'm not the biggest basketball fan. Like, it's fun and entertaining to watch it, but I just never go out of my way to do it because I just don't. I'm not invested. By the way, all of your arguments, and Joseph, I swear we're going to get to you eventually, but all of your arguments um, 
about what you love about sports movies is the reason that eventually we're going to do the Rocky films because that's my case. It's like oh, I'm Rocky. Totally, I'm totally down for that. Yeah. Sorry, Joseph, you have to watch Rocky again. Oh, no. So, anyway, Joseph. Yeah, yeah Joseph, speak on the, on the movie you picked. On the movie I picked. Well, look, I, I enjoyed this movie when I saw it in theaters the first time around. Because I didn't think about it too much. It's like, oh, sports movie with a bunch of people yelling at each other. Why not? That sounds like mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Uh, and I still enjoy this movie. I survived it. I thought it was, it's a, it's a well-made movie. It doesn't quite hold up. But I still enjoy it. Because yeah. I, all the performances are really good. And I agree. The, the football is the least interesting part. But I always like, think that was kind of supposed to be the whole that was supposed to be what it was mostly about was the everybody in it, not really the. But for some reason, they filmed a bunch of people playing football for a while. I think Oliver Stone was actually trying to make you feel like you were part of the game, and instead failed. He kind of filmed that part, but at the same time, it's, I found everything else so interesting. I kind of didn't care. Yeah. Because uh, even with the craziness that goes on in the movie, that's just kind of nonsensical. Mm-hmm. It's still interesting. Yeah, I still want to know what the what the fuck's gonna happen next. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're like, if you would have told me if if you would have predicted as an alligator right before I watched this movie, somebody's gonna throw an alligator into a locker room and be like, "You're that's not gonna happen." This is maybe like, holy shit, you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't predict that. No. <laughs> <laughs> In a movie that has its fair share of sports movie cliches, an alligator in the shower is not one of them. not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All but right. I appreciate it for that. <laughs> but so okay. I, I survived it. I thought it was, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. So three for three um, survivals. This movie barely won the Pantheon Cup, but next week. Are we going to be as victorious? Sammy, what are we doing next? We are doing... We're finally going to finish the John's favorite, the Kissing Booth trilogy. (sighs) (laughs) A film I wanted to do in 2021 only for us to do uh, three episodes in the last two months of the show. (laughs) So... But yeah, we since we're drawing since the NFL is drawing to a close, why not close out the Kissing Booth trilogy until they make part four and I scream and throw something at my, t- my TV? So, <clears throat> does anybody have any shout outs? Uh, I have nothing. I heard Joseph had nothing, and then Sammy made a noise and went silent. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. All right. I don't have a TikTok ban this week, but I am going to keep this brief. Uh, I have two quick shout outs. Number one, I finally got to see the latest film from director Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Licorice Pizza. And I thought it was a delightful film that should be uh, paired in a double feature as the second film with Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood every weekend at the New Beverly until the end of time. <laughs> um and if the three of us were go- to go see it, I believe that uh, Joseph would survive it and Sammy would yell at me. 
<laughs> because it too had 17 plots. But uh, watching the film, um, and I, I got to watch it with my friends Justin and Hannah and Rachel, uh, giving them a shout out on the show because Justin listens to the show. I was very much like, where is this going? And I had that same feeling that I did the first time I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I know whenever I go back and I'm kind of, I know the world that I'm going back into, I have a feeling that I'm going to love it even more. Uh, although whenever it comes to the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights is still the king, baby. Also, I want to give a quick shout out to the first show I have binged in a week, in less than a week, in the longest time, but I watched all of Amazon Prime's Reacher, uh, based on the Jack Reacher novels written by Lee Child. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, they made a film or two about them, uh, and they put Tom Cruise in them. And I really like the first Tom Cruise one, and the second one I just kind of like. But this time they course corrected and made uh, Reacher six foot five instead of five foot six, so we can stop the bitching about that now. Um, But uh, and as a show, um, here's the thing: a lot of people are like, "Well, it's really got to be telling if uh, you finish the show." Here's the thing: Um, a lot of the prestige television that would probably get A pluses from the critics. I watch an episode of that and then realize there's no way I'm going to stay awake for this, so I'm going to hold this off to the you know mythical later that never happens. But I finished this show and I would give it like a B minus because it reeks of television show that CBS wishes they could put out, and it, it just feels it just has that you know feel in in a lot of the acting, a lot of the writing, and a lot of the production value like. This is a CBS TV series that just happens to have the occasional fuck and a castrated corpse in it uh, and the occasional bullet to the head. But I had a lot of fun with it. I, I do like Jack Reacher and um, comparing the TV Reacher to the Tom Cruise Reacher. They do have a lot of the same mannerisms and you know wit about them. So I feel that the series is in good hands and I will accept finally that someone other than Tom Cruise is playing that role, even though... I every time a book fan bitched about uh, Cruz's stature in that film, it just made my love of that first film stronger. So definitely yeah. recommend recommend it if you like murder mysteries, um, particularly those that have a, a tie to the military. And you can ha- accept a few things that just seem this would only you know can be described as like this would only happen in a TV series. Um, so yeah, so if you like crime shows, give Reacher a chance. Season two's already been greenlit, and now I have to wait a year. See, this is why I don't binge watch shows. <laughs> you know? It's very frustrating. Yeah, it's like, like there, there is something to that whole week to week format. That uh, back, back in my day, whenever television just released a show one at one at a time, you know, you didn't have to also wait so long for a new great. season. Yeah. All right, well, um, <laughs> Joseph, good pick for the very first uh, surviving uh, ch- uh, sports flicks. I don't know what I was trying to say there. I think I had a mild stroke. Uh, <laughs> um, that's that's uh, pretty accurate for what we just watched. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if this show was, if this episode it was your first and it was uh, slightly nonsensical, well, so was the movie, but also so is this show. Uh, and if you liked it, go back and listen to the older episodes. All right. All right. 
And uh, anyway, Joseph, Sammy, thank you for doing another uh, episode with us. And listeners, just remember, podcasting is peace with inches. Surviving Chicklets is brought to you by the Circle of Jug. The show is edited by John, and all clips used are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and leave us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show. If there's anything you would like us to cover on the show, or just drop us a line at survivingchickflicks at gmail.com. The show is copyright 2022, Circle of Jug Productions, all rights reserved. It looks like uh, he had damage to his eye.